Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Proverbs 29:18 says this. It says, "Where there's no prophetic vision, the people are discouraged. But blessed is he who keeps the law." The scriptures teach us that a vision of God's laws, a vision of God's ways applied to our life is meant to encourage us. And this makes vision important and especially powerful when it's anchored in God's word. One pastor puts it this way, that vision is a picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it must be. Vision matters to know where you're going to build desire in your heart to get there. And so every so often we want to teach on our mission and vision here at Citizens specifically to encourage our hearts to follow God's ways specifically over generally. Because God's vision for every church is this. You've probably heard something like this before. Glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. That is generally the vision of every church in the world and should be. And a lot of churches use that as their personal mission statement, but there's a big problem with that. That statement is incredibly vague. That doesn't tell you anything about how it's supposed to go or what you're actually going to do. In big commitments, vagueness is not helpful. When you buy a house, there's a lot of terms and conditions. When you get married, you don't just get married to anyone or just someone. It's a particular person or it's quite a surprise at the altar. See, the details kind of matter when people in love and sacrifice and effort and time and money and this huge, all these things are at stake. We need some details. Our vision must be specific to the problems and opportunities of Birmingham. We're not just planting any old church or generic church or a general church. We're trying to plant the church that Jesus wants to plant here in the soil of Birmingham. So our vision is this, to cultivate a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham. And we're going to spend these three important weeks on our vision, defining what we mean and where we're going. And today we're going to talk about why we're named citizens at all and how that plays into cultivating a diverse community of disciples. Next week, we'll preach a very evangelistic sermon as focusing on belonging to Jesus. But today, I want to get a little technical with us and a little more explaining with us and dive deep of when we wear citizens on our chest or put it on a banner or on social media. What do we mean? What are we saying? And what's that mean for your life? Look with me at Philippians 3. This is why we named the church Citizens. It says they're headed for destruction. When it says they, they talk about everyone who refuses to follow Jesus. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. They think only about life here on earth. But we, those who follow Jesus, are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as Savior. He will take our weak and mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Using the same power with which he will bring everything, everything under his control. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. We chose citizens as our name so that we would 
remember that our most important and our first identity is that we're citizens of heaven. Before any other relationship, before any other background, before any other part of our story, before any other identity that we choose or the world puts on us, we are first belong to Jesus' heaven. It's the number one thing about us is you belong to Jesus. That if we have repented of our sins and turned to Jesus in faith, we belong to him. And that's what matters most. When you belong to Jesus, it supersedes every worldly relationship because it's the only identity that's going to last for eternity. Everything else will burn away into a distant past, but this will blaze into the future for as long as eternity lasts that you belong to the King of Heaven Himself. And when we live as citizens of Heaven's first, it actually transforms all our other relationships and identity. When you walk into your workplace that you're a citizen of heaven before an employee of the company, it changes how you think about everyone else. When you walk into your friendship or a marriage or hang out with your friends or hang out with your roommates, it changes everything. When you walk in saying, I'm a citizen of heaven first, it's not about me getting what I need out of all this. It's about me serving a Jesus. See, when you embrace your identity of a citizen of heaven, It starts to transform the world around you. It transforms how you see yourself and how you act. And this passage spells out three titles of Jesus that inform how this citizenship works. To dive in a little more, what's it mean that I'm a citizen of Jesus' heaven? And what's it look like in our life? And the first title that Jesus is given is he's called Savior. It's called Jesus' Savior, which means your past is forgiven and you can forget what lies behind. It means your present is being redeemed. That means you can strive ahead to make Jesus your own. And it also means your future is secure and nothing will change your citizenship ever. It's stamped, signed, sealed, delivered, final forever, which gives you a security that nothing this world can offer, a hope to strive for in the now. In a past that nothing could be expunged more than the mighty God who looks on sin and forgives it by the power of his cross. That's what the Savior means. And it goes on to call Jesus Lord, which means in your joy, in the joy of your salvation, you're bringing everything that's in your life under the Lordship of Jesus. Every word we speak, every work we do, every relationship, every dollar, every technology, every habit. We start to bring under the mighty lordship of King Jesus. He's not our divine butler. He's not our therapist. But Jesus is our friend who's also our Lord and everlasting God. Therefore, we happily reevaluate our life to say, is this in submission to Jesus? Is this in submission to God's word? He becomes the loving final authority in our life, not to hold us back, but to set us free to worship him with all of our heart and soul. See, your citizenship in heaven means Jesus is your Savior. It means he's your Lord now. It also means he's your King forever. This text calls him Christ, the anointed Messiah, the long-promised King. It also refers to all things being subjected or under his control, which is more kingly language. Because Jesus is actively transforming every inch of this world. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going to bring his redemption as far as the curse is found and the curse is found in every tribe, culture, across this world, in every physical part of this world and spiritual part of this world. Everything's been tainted by sin. 
And Jesus is bringing that redemption into our life. See, when you have Jesus as king, it transforms you to see your life as theological. You don't just think about it in contemporary terms, but rather you think about your life as theological. If Jesus is king, it means our God is not our appetite or our bank account. If Jesus is king, it means we don't pursue or brag about shameful things. If Jesus is king, it means we don't care only about this life here on earth. We're not worried about being cool. We're not worried about our friends' approval on Facebook. We're not worried about those things because we have a different king. We're citizens of heaven. The political left and the political right don't own you. They don't have the last word on what you believe or what you do or what you think. Citizens of heaven don't need to keep up with the Jones is next door. They don't need to climb the ladder at work to prove they're significant or have worth to anybody else. You're a citizen of heaven, church. You no longer seek anyone's approval because you have it in Jesus Christ. His record of rightness, his righteousness is now yours forever and no one can ever take it away. So we can obey the Lord Jesus because we know where we're going and our primary identity is citizen of heaven, living out faith in the citizenship of Birmingham. That's why specificity matters. And this text tells us what obedience looks like. It says, eagerly await his coming. We just talked all about that for five weeks. And stay true to the Lord. Eagerly await Jesus' coming and stay true to the Lord. You would think there was a bigger action verb, like seize everything, dominate, advance at all costs. But what it says is eagerly await his coming and stay true to the Lord. See, the Lord's prayer reveals this relationship between God, our citizenship, the kingdom, in Matthew 6.10, says this, Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What it means to live out your citizenship, church, is much more like cultivating than dominating. We are to live and pray for God's will to be done and then actually do it. We're praying for our own obedience, God's own power in our life to do what God wants in our life. And when we do God's will, we bring the kingdom of heaven in and through our lives to everything we do. God's vision as our citizenship in heaven would be the vehicle that the kingdom of God continues to come through us. See, cultivating isn't steamrolling. Cultivating isn't cultural imperialism. We pray for God's will and we willingly do it because all the time God is at work bringing Jesus' kingdom continually to earth and using you. It's God's work, but he longs and does use his church to accomplish it. You're not on the sidelines of God's grand plan. If you trust in Jesus, you are the church. And he's cultivating a kingdom through you in the small routines of obedience and the big risks. They both matter to God. See, in Genesis 2, God called humans to work and keep the garden. 
And this work hasn't changed for us in the world, but it's added an urgent priority of the Great Commission. We are to work and keep this world with this urgent priority of the Great Commission to tell everyone in the sin-scarred earth about a Jesus who saves, who's a wonderful Lord and King of it all. And Paul explains how all this works together in 1 Corinthians 3. Look with me, church. We are only God's servants through whom you believe the gospel. Each of us did the work that the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together for the, with the same purpose, but both will be rewarded for the, their own hard work. We are both God's workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. We belong to God and God is cultivating this gospel word through us. We plant seeds, we water, we do the work. He says it's hard work. It's not lack of effort. It is effort. But it's God at work through us. All the things we want most are stuff only God can do. Only God can bring a dead heart to life in Christ. Only God can change us deeply. But he uses us all the time and longs to do so more and more. And the question becomes, what are we cultivating? Well, God is bringing about heaven's future to the now. He is seeding the one day fruit in heaven right now. Now, that's what the kingdom coming is, that what will be true in heaven one day is being worked on in this world right now. Look with me at Revelation 7. It's a vision of the future, and look what we see. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, every tribe, and people, and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. We are cultivating a diverse community now because that's heaven's future. We're called to work now because that is where the world is ending in the hands of God with people of every tribe and tongue worshiping the only one who's worthy. Jesus' heaven is filled with diversity of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Jesus. The priority of a diverse community doesn't come from current social trends or commentary on American life, but it is and always has been God's vision for the church. Always. We are the people of heaven, and this is what heaven looks like. And the New Testament is full of this story. We see Jesus is crossing worldly lines all the time. He's hanging out with Roman centurions. He's hanging out with Gentiles. He's talking to people who aren't Jewish. He's breaking all their little lines they'd set up all the time. The first sermon in Acts 2, a whole multitude of people believe Peter's sermon, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're Jews from all sorts of different nationalities. It's easy to miss. They're all in town for a festival, and they all believe. All these people from all different places all come to faith that the first church was a multi-ethnic church. 
And you see that story repeat throughout the New Testament as people come to believe from every walk of life, every income. They mention poor people, they mention slaves, they mention middle class people, they mention ordinary people, all coming to faith throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Roman Empire. That the local churches described throughout the New Testament were full of all sorts of people reflecting this vision coming to fruition. It's always God's plan. And he continues to do it all over the world. The world draws lines on who you can hang out with and be friends with. And God writes love over every single line. That's what God's doing in your life and wants to do more. That's what it means to build a diverse community. Say, I don't submit to the worldly lines that have been set up. Rather, I believe God's love is for absolutely everyone because God made everyone, is redeeming everyone, and I am certain of that future because God says so. Diversity might be a buzzword in our culture, but it's God's idea. It's the future of heaven. And here's a theological deep truth. See, our God is a unified God. There is only one God, Deuteronomy 6. But God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has a diversity of himself. There are three persons in a unified one God. And with this diversity and unity, it allows for glory, for love, and community within God himself. They dwell in perfect harmony from all eternity past. From before eternity was eternity, God has been three persons together enjoying this harmony together. And he wants to model that through his people. And where they have harmony, we got a problem. See, we can all have unity in Jesus, one Jesus, one faith, one baptism. We can all have faith in Jesus, and we can have diversity of people. Each individual person is different from one another. There's a thousand ways we could have this diversity from story to background to, to sex and gender, all those things, the hundred different ways we could think about diversity. But we don't have harmony because we are a broken people in a broken world, because sin is real. We don't just get to enjoy harmony like God, but instead we must fight for maturity. We must grow up together to hold this unity we have in Christ, a diversity of people of who we are, because unity does not demand uniformity. We're not making clones here. We're making redeemed people to be who they truly are, citizens of heaven. And where we don't have harmony, we grow up in maturity. Why do you think Paul and James and Peter in these New Testament letters are constantly encouraging people to love one another, listen well, forgive one another, how to serve people? Because it was hard to have people who never hung out ever in their life because if they had a divided society too, suddenly were in local churches together. They had to grow up in maturity. That's why God talks about sanctification so much. We must grow up by the Spirit of God to have the unity in Christ, the diversity of peoples and stories, and then grow in maturity together. And that's how you'll see the beauty. Ask any artist or photographer, what makes beauty? What makes a beautiful face? It's unity, diversity of features, and then a harmony. God wants beauty in every local church across the globe. The local churches would reflect their local communities. 
And that's why we're passionate about here at Citizens of what God can do, has done, and will do through us. But Birmingham has a unique story and history, and it bleeds into our present reality. And one theme in Birmingham's story is racial, ethnic, and class division, including the horrors, the horrors of lynching, Jim Crow, segregation, the imprisonment of protesters, housing discrimination, dangerous minds worked by the poor for years and years on end. We must recognize at least that theme of the story because as we're cultivating a diverse community, we must realize we're fighting an uphill battle because sin has poisoned the soil. Decades, even centuries of sin has compounded and poisoned the soil, dividing Birmingham against herself over and over and over. And if we are to ignore those realities, we will be constantly frustrated. Rather, trust God by faith to be a new people, to listen well, to forgive one another, to grow in humility and understanding. Because God doesn't have this like rocket science solution that if we just figure it out, it's all going to work out. But instead, Jesus gives us very clear teaching. This is clear teaching that if we had followed for the past century or two, a lot of this predicament would have been avoided. Look with me at Mark 12, verse 30. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The church's answer to worldly lines is love. Slow, understanding, patient, forgiving, humble love of God and neighbor. That's the solution. We must love one another or we have no shot at a diverse community of disciples. John 13 says, you will know my disciples by how they love. If we want to be a beautiful witness, full of unity, diversity, and maturity, we must love. It's the fabric of Christianity from God to us and us to others and us within ourselves. Church, we have done, will do, and will continue to love Come with me, church. The cultivation of diverse community to bring heaven's future into the now is love. And the commitment to Jesus, where this disciples part of the vision comes from, look at Philippians 3.17. I love this little line. It's just a little line Paul squeezes in there, and then all of a sudden it changes how you think. It says, dear brothers and sisters, dear church at Philippi, Pattern your lives after mine. Learn from those who follow our example. They didn't have a full Bible in front of them. They probably had an Old Testament that was, that was written in Greek called Septuagint that was kind of getting passed around. You only had like maybe one copy or a couple copies maybe in the whole town. They were collecting these letters from Paul. They were learning the faith. They were jotting big notes. When people came to speak, it was note time, writing it all down. They're figuring this faith out. And what he's saying is, hey, you got to copy me. To be a disciple, that word methuo just means learner. It sounds fancier as disciple, but it just means learner, that we must learn to follow Jesus. No one just knows how to follow Jesus. We must learn and learn and keep learning. 
all the days of our life. Today, some things I might say, you're like, well, that's, that's a whole new world I need to learn. Great. We need to keep learning. We're not called to be a disciples once, but a disciple always. And we need one another in this. It's not just you and the Bible go hide in a cave for 50 years and pop out and you're ready to follow the Lord perfectly. No, God's plan is the local church helping one another as an example to follow Jesus. You need people in your life. You do. That is the plan of the New Testament. It's the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God forming God's church together in every single letter throughout the New Testament. And there's a power that you can just start to humbly ask, man, what do you you think I should do here? I don't know what to do. We need to be experts in saying, I don't know what to do. My daughter has this huge learning block in her life. And the block is this, she hates to make mistakes and fail. Therefore, she will pull herself back to only comfortable activities that she can just rock. She wants to dunk on people every time, but she hates trying new things because when you try new things, you stumble and fail. And we could be like, Eloise, that's so silly. Mirror, that's what adults do. They get comfortable in what they do, declare everyone else silly and wrong, and they've said, this is what I know. And they stop learning and it happens spiritually all the time. It's how we don't grow up or we, or we get nostalgic about back when I was in blah, blah, blah. God wants to keep learning with you right now. God doesn't need to learn, but we need to learn. God wants to use his church to do this thing with you. He wants examples for us to follow Paul, for us to follow one another. The Sunday matters that we teach and sing in liturgy and prayers and communion with the spirit and the word and examples all around. Sunday is practice for every day. That's why we do it, to prepare our hearts and minds for the next six days. And hopefully you feel deeply renewed when you leave. You feel hungry for more of the Lord and his word, but you also feel renewed and ready for the week to come. There's a power in gathering, just as Hebrews instructs us to not give up gathering. If you want to get discouraged, quit gathering. That is a number one solution in the New Testament. If you want to get discouraged, go it alone for a while. It will not go well. I've been in the game a minute, and I've seen the people that thrive year after year after year. They commit to one another. They commit to the Lord and his word, and they grow and grow and grow. But going it alone is as scary as it sounds. Church, we need each other as an example. The average church member in America only hits, this is a church member, someone who adamantly says, yes, I belong to a church, only goes to church 21 times a year. That's the adamant group. 21 is going to really be hard. But someone changed me and Elena's life by leaning in and saying, hey, what if you made it more like 50 of 52? And I was like, I, I don't need all that. I'm a minister. You know, I got stuff to do. And he says, well, make it a requirement of this internship or you're out. Oh, okay. So <laughs> found myself there 50 times a year. And it changed my life. That plus community group, personal study, serving one another. It changed my life because suddenly citizens of heaven actually became my weekly identity. It was a lot easier to remember who I was in Christ when I was with Christ's people, following other people's examples instead of me just figuring it out on my own, thinking I knew everything. There's a humility to happily saying, I need other people and still do. That's not changing, and it never will. Hopefully, Jesus.
We need one another or we're not going to make it. And I want to make it. Church, when your identity shifts to be a learner, suddenly living your identity of citizen of heaven gets a whole lot easier. Let us be learners. Discipleship, diversity, community, these are giant ideas. <laughs> giant. They're, they're books on books level ideas. But I want to point us to what cultivation of these big ideas looks like. I have maybe a favorite quote of mine. It's from the poet and writer Wendell Berry. He's a lifelong farmer, writer in Kentucky, well-decorated. And he makes this comparison between, between exploiters, kind of a worldly way to go about the big things of life, and a nurturer or a cultivator. I want to read this quote to you. If you want to close your eyes, go for it. If you want to keep them open and read with me. But just take some time to digest this, what Wendell Berry has to say to us. I conceive a strip miner to be a model exploiter. And as a model nurturer, I take an old-fashioned idea of an ideal farmer. The exploiter is a specialist, an expert. The nurturer is not. The standard of the exploiter is efficiency. The standard of the nurturer is care. The exploiter's goal is always money, profit, success. The nurturer's goal is health. His land's health, his own, his families, his communities, his countries. Whereas the exploiter asks of a piece of land how much and how quickly can be made to produce the nurturer asks the question that is much more complex and difficult. What is this land's carrying capacity? That is, how much can be taken from it without diminishing it? What can it produce dependably for an indefinite amount of time? The exploiter wishes to earn as much as possible by as little work as possible. The nurturer expects, certainly, to have a decent living from his work, but his characteristic wish is to work as well as possible. The competence of the exploiter is an organization. That of the nurturer is an order, a human order. That is, that accommodates itself both to the other order and a mystery. The exploiter typically serves an institution or an organization. The nurturer serves the land, the household, community, place. The exploiter thinks in terms of numbers, quantities, hard facts. The nurturer in terms of character, condition, quality, and kind. Church, I'm not so worried about the hard facts. I am always thinking about health. A healthy citizens is the best thing for Birmingham and the whole world. I'm focused in quality, character, condition, kind, 
of citizens to have the ability to cultivate a diverse community of disciples for an indefinite amount of time. Exploiters are worried about what they can get, but cultivators are focused on how they can give and nurture this church into being. Exploiters seek power. Cultivators seek shared responsibility and faithfulness to one another. Exploiters want to be a big deal, but cultivators care about what we're all creating together. Exploiters cannot commit to anything because life is ultimately about them and what they can get. Cultivators believe commitment is the only way life makes any sense. Success is the goal when you live as an exploiter through this life, not just at citizens, but work, citizen of Birmingham, anywhere. Health is the goal when you're cultivating your life as a citizen of heaven. It's an entirely different way to think about the board game of your life. We won't be chasing numbers or notoriety here at Citizens. We won't be chasing speed like a tech startup. But rather, we're going to await the Lord's coming and stay true to obedience as citizens of heaven. Believing God wants heaven's future to be cultivated here today as a diverse community of disciples. This is a vision of what could be and what I believe what must be. And I ask you to believe with me, church. I ask you to cultivate something with me. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 